For all your fantasy football needs, check out the Ringer Fantasy Football Show with me, Danny Kelly, along with Danny Heifetz and Craig Horlbeck. That's the Ringer Fantasy Football Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. This episode is brought to you by Hulu. Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone star in Hulu's limited series Under the Bridge, a chilling true crime story based on the acclaimed novel. Hailed as a riveting and heartbreakingly realistic work by the Chicago Sun-Times and featuring excellent performances, according to Time magazine, the series is for your Emmy consideration in all categories, including outstanding limited series and outstanding supporting actress in a limited series for Keo and Gladstone. For more information, visit fyc.hulu.com. It is Monday, October 2nd. I hosted a dinner with some executives and creatives at the Toronto Film Festival last month. The discussion was off the record, but one of the filmmakers there had a background in television and mentioned that because of all the uncertainty in the TV business, Several friends had asked about getting into movies. That was amusing to me because obviously for decades, that was the clear path for writers. With exceptions, you worked in TV unless you could have a movie career. That was always considered more prestigious. That all changed during the era of peak TV. Every filmmaker seemed to want to become a TV auteur. There's basically only a handful of in-demand people who won't do TV these days. And in an era of 600 scripted shows last year, there was a lot of opportunities to make interesting stuff. That era is pretty clearly ending for a lot of the reasons we talk about on this show. High interest rates, the focus on profitability at the studios, fractured audiences, and maybe a small factor is the five-month writer strike, which just ended. Hundreds of TV writers got some bad news this past week. Their overall deals, those are the contracts that pay big annual fees for exclusivity or first-look privileges for the studios, they weren't extended to account for the five months of the strike. That was a surprise for many of them, and it means they will lose money. It all raises the question of whether their contracts will ultimately be renewed. Many won't, and it's all part of a general contraction of the TV business that I've been predicting for a while now. Lots of repercussions for the overall entertainment business from that new reality. And that's what we're talking about today with Lucas Shaw from Bloomberg. How bad will it get in TV? Will all those TV writers now move over to film? The writer's strike is over, so now what? From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Lucas Shaw from Bloomberg coming at us from New York. Uh, why are you in New York, Lucas? Were you there for the big Taylor Swift football game last night? You know, if if only. No, <laughs> I uh, I was eating Indian food with a bunch of friends while the world was collectively freaking out about the, the Kelsey Swift affair. All right, well, we're going to talk in the call sheet about the Beyonce movie versus the Taylor Swift movie, uh, so stick around for that. But first, we are talking about the end of the writer's strike. And we've talked a lot about that on this show. Uh, did a couple of shows have last we? week. We have. We have talked a lot about that on this show. I know. Listen, it's a big deal. But now it's over. At least the writers' portion is over. And the writers, they got back to work last week and got some bad news, many of them. The studios, it's a little complicated, so I'm going to explain it. The studios basically have declined to extend many of the writers that are in their employ. Meaning 
during the strike, a lot of writers, most writers, if you weren't, you know, a huge name, they got suspended, not terminated, but their deals got suspended, meaning that the writers were not paid during the strike. And the expectation amongst most writers that I talked to was that once the strike ended, the studios would simply extend their deals for the length of the strike, meaning the strike was about five months. So the studios would just add five months onto the end of their deals to accommodate the time that they were striking. And it turns out that for most of the writers this week, they were told that that is not happening that the studios are declining to extend their deals. They're just going to skip over those five months. And the decision as to whether to re-up or renew those contracts will be made on an individual basis. But essentially, writers lost about five months of pay for the most part. Not great. I mean, isn't that what they expected though right that's why no, no 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 i get that they wanted their deals extended and all that but when you go on strike you typically sacrifice your pay while you are on strike to get gains for your next contract that's like the whole concept of a labor strike it is however many of these writers thought that they would be extended and because they were not terminated their deals were not terminated during the strike as many thought that they might be they said oh okay i'm in the clear because the market is the market. These studios, you would think, want to be in business with these writers that they have under contract. So why wouldn't they extend them after the strike is over? Because it gives them more time with them. But that gets into the reason why they haven't. Well, because they don't have to. These are people who have consistent overall deals where a studio is paying for their overhead, paying them upfront money, all of those things. Now, that used to be somewhat rare. We now have so many of these deals because, again, part of the streaming boom, you had way more writers getting overall deals because all these companies were fighting to lock down talent because they wanted their services. And that meant not only did you have the big people like Shonda Ryan, Ryan Murphy, Seth MacFarlane, Mindy Kaling, all those folks getting locked up, but you'd have people who are like the second or third producer on one of those right. shows getting an overall deal. And so it was inevitable that there would be a contraction in these deals. And so I think what we'll see when some of these deals are up in one year, two years, three years, is that the ones that they want to keep, they'll renew or they'll go to the open market and they'll get a new one. But there'll just be a lot of people who don't have deals. And so if you're a studio, the studios didn't cancel deals, which has happened, by the way, in past strikes. That did happen in the last strike. You're and right. so I think it surprised a lot of people that they didn't. And I imagine part of the reason they didn't is it would have been very negative for them from a public relations standpoint. And they were already getting killed there. That's true. And so instead, they save money basically on the end of it instead of killing a bunch of things that they don't want to do. And then they can, they, they'll be a bit of a, potentially a bit of a buyer's market for the studios who can pick and choose what they want. Now, the important thing to remember is that if you are one of that top, top talent, you still dictate the terms, obviously. Yeah, we're not talking about the A-plus writer producers here. We're talking about, you know, the, the rise of the mid-career writer who was getting a $3 million a year to $5 million a year overall deal for two to three years to provide services on a show and potentially come up with other shows, that deal is going away. Even since the last strike, that deal has doubled in value of what these people typically can make. And there's just so many more of them now out there that are under these deals. And you said it correctly, this strike has gone headfirst 
into what was already a contraction in the market. We were talking about the end of peak TV even before the strike. And now that the strike is over, it's five months later, all of these companies have been struggling over the summer with their stock prices and their push to make their streaming services profitable. And they're looking at this roster of writers that they are carrying. And they're saying, okay, if we're going to be making fewer shows, why again do we have these dozens of writers on $5 million a year contracts when we probably don't need them? Or at least we can get them on the open market? Makes sense. Yeah, I mean, the likely outcome, I think, of all this, I don't think the strike materially changes the the business. Well, that's the question is, did the strike exacerbate this and do the higher costs that the studios are going to have to pay to make shows because of the terms that the guild won in the strike and that the actors are likely going to win in the strike? Does that exacerbate this pullback? You say exacerbate, I say accelerate. I guess. I would say that it accelerates trends that were already happening. And what you'll see is these companies will make fewer shows, but those shows will cost more. And there will be fewer writing jobs as a result, but those jobs will be higher paying. And the writers have chosen to make that sacrifice. It's why I think they were so adamant about minimum staffing, because if you were going to go from 600 shows to 400 shows, you wanted to at least know that each of those shows were going to have two or three jobs. And I do think the total number of writing jobs will go down. But if this all works out the way that they want it to, those jobs should be slightly higher paying, at least some of them. And a lot of the cost in that will, frankly, be passed on to the consumer, right? It's like, The studios and these media companies are not going to take greater losses. And so they are going to charge more because that's the easiest way to make up for it. Yeah, or the budgets for content of these companies are going to stay the same or go down. And they will just have to figure out how to manage that with the number of shows that they make. And like you said, make fewer. I mean, it is interesting to look at the macroeconomics here. It does feel a little bit like a redistribution of wealth from the higher earning writers who tend to be on these big overall deals and the $5 million a year writer to the writers who are making the minimums because the minimums are now going up. And the only caveat there is that there may be fewer shows for those (laughs) low level writers to work on. But if they do get higher, they are going to make more money. So, you know, yes, it does do what the Guild sought to do, which was to bring up the lower level writers. The question is how much loss of jobs there's going to be. You think it'll redistribute, though? You think that the middle class writer will, as a result of all this, make less? That's sort of the basically the top will continue to do great. Obviously, the bottom will do better and the middle is where there'll be a crunch. I think so. I mean, it depends what you call the middle. Is a $3 million a year writer the middle? I mean, in this context, yes. In this context, it's probably upper middle. Sure, because those are the people that are steady working writers, good careers, not Shonda Rhimes, but also not scraping by, you know, on Twitter asking people to give you a job. Like, these are people that have real writing careers. And I think that those deals are the ones that are going away. Yeah. And those folks will have to accept that instead of having uh, the security of an overall deal with a streaming service or a studio, that they're going to have to compete for a job and try to get the job as a head writer, showrunner, producer on the shows that do remain instead of having something guaranteed. 
I also think there's just going to be a purge. I mean, the, the writer's guild itself has swelled during the peak TV era. A lot of people have been brought into the business that were not there before this big run-up. And a lot of those people will just leave the business. They won't be able to sustain careers. They won't be able to get jobs. And they'll do something else. Yeah, they'll, they'll do something else or they'll move into another part of the business. They'll move into... I mean, they probably don't want to do this, but they could move into video games. They could move into visual effects. They could move into you know something related. Podcasting. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, the podcasting <laughs> already has gone through a similar correction, if you will. So I don't know that there are a bunch of jobs for them. But yeah, they could they could start a rewatch podcast that's always available to people. This episode is brought to you by Hulu. Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone star in Hulu's limited series Under the Bridge, a chilling true crime story based on the acclaimed novel. Hailed as a riveting and heartbreakingly realistic work by the Chicago Sun-Times and featuring excellent performances, according to Time magazine, the series is for your Emmy consideration in all categories, including Outstanding Limited Series and Outstanding Supporting Actress in a Limited Series for Keough and Gladstone. For more information, visit fyc.hulu.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. One thing I wanted to talk about is this question of TV versus film, because, you know, I've heard this, that because of all the contraction and chaos in the TV business, that it's just going to push more writers either back to film, because there's been this shift over the past decade of film people doing TV because you can have more freedom, the money's great, you could be an auteur in a way that often the studios do not let you in film. And now that because TV is on the downswing, that more writers are going to go back to film and that there's going to be a renaissance in the movie business of creativity. I'm putting renaissance in scare quotes there because I'm not sure I totally agree with that. Uh, you probably do not. I do not. Here's my problem with this argument, I guess. It's not like there are more movies being made. They're also cutting back on spending on movies. Netflix single-handedly inflated the market for movies over the last five years. It made more movies basically than every other studio, or as many movies as basically every other studio combined. And we remember <laughs> one or two of them. <laughs> and they're cutting back pretty significantly. It's not like there are a bunch of jobs that are coming around, right? All these media companies are getting more conservative, and that applies to yeah. film as well as television. The area where there could be an opportunity, and this could apply to TV as well, is outside of the system, right? Yeah. Like the thing that movies has that TV doesn't have as much of is sort of an independent world with independent financing and the movies that you bring to festivals and something that you can make on a relatively cheap budget and then get a studio to buy or release. That I think will be very vibrant, much as on the TV side, if there are companies that actually do have the financing to make things on their own. That's where I think the excitement and the creativity is going to come from. It's the whole question about like what will happen to the market for spec scripts, these scripts that get written without anyone attached to it. That usually does well in these moments because you have a bunch of people who've been sitting at home writing their ideas because they don't have anyone to pay them. 
Yeah, it's not like the studios are all of a sudden going to say, wow, TV's in a tough spot. Let's just make more movies. Like, that's not how it works. There may be more A-level creative talent who focus their energies on movies if they can't get their TV projects off the ground. And that could lead to potentially better, more high-profile movie projects. But the days of HBO Max making movies just for the service, over. over. The days of Hulu, I think, making movies just for the service. There will be some from Searchlight and other places, but I think that's kind of over. And, you know, Netflix is pulling back. How much do you think Netflix is pulling back? They were making like 60, 70 movies a year at one point. What do you think they're going to be down to? The Netflix movie number has always been hard to pin down because they would issue these releases that would say that they were making like 60 movies a year. But then when you actually did the math, it looked like they were releasing like 100, like 90 to 100 movies a year. Well, some were local language, right? Yeah. They seem to have settled in, at least for now, in the like 50 to 60 range. But I could see that easily going down to more in the 40 to 50 or even 30 to 40. I think they like the idea of having a new movie a week, basically. Yeah. All produced by the Russo brothers. <laughs> no, I'm I joking. I went to see their movie in theaters yesterday. Granted, Fair it's a play. Movie they, they, they picked it up at Sundance. I was going to say, it. but they bought that movie. MRC made yeah. that movie. Fair. Fair play, I heard, is very good. It was a Sundance pickup. I mean, they still do buy these movies. They've got the Todd Haynes movie they bought at Sundance. But they buy these movies because they think they can win awards with them and convince everybody to come and work at Netflix and make their movie there. And then they end up making Hearts of Stone. The thing is, is that Fair Play has the potential to be a commercial movie because it's a thriller and it moves, it has pace. It is not a, a plot. Like the Todd Haynes movie is more likely than not. I haven't seen it yet. So if, people can correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong. Julianne Moore, Natalie Portman. But May, December feels like your classic art house movie that doesn't make a lot of money. No, they bought it because they think they can get an Oscar nomination for Natalie Portman. Correct. Plain and simple. Fair Play is the type of movie that if marketed correctly, you know, it could be Gone Girl, right? It could make a couple hundred million dollars at the box office. Now, the theater I went to had seven people in it, but that's a different issue. <laughs> yeah, because it's going to be on Netflix next weekend. <laughs> Everybody knows that. It's ridiculous. And sadly, for people like Alden Ehrenreich and Phoebe Devners, is it? Like, if that had been a hit in theaters, maybe their star power would have risen. But are they going to get any bump? from the movie dropping on Netflix and it kind of disappearing, unless it gets awards traction? I don't know. Like all these movies from the festivals that have potential breakout stars in them, they get hoovered up by Netflix, dumped on the service, and like, what does that do for the actors? Okay, rather than giving you your, your soapbox to, to rail against Netflix movies again, I will mm -hmm. point out that there are two places where I think there could be more movies, which is I do feel like Apple and Amazon are going to fund more. The issue for most writers is that, at least for now, the Apple strategy in particular is we're only going to do it if it's big star, big name, big director, super expensive, or a couple, they'll pick up a movie at a festival for 15 to $25 million. Coda. Amazon, and, win, and win Best Picture before yeah. everyone else. Amazon's movie strategy is still a little bit of a work in progress because of MGM. The two of them combined would sort of replace the output that was lost from Fox getting bought by Disney, plus maybe some of the other people cutting back. But Netflix alone cutting back just depresses the number of movies getting made. Yeah, I know. The, the MGM Amazon thing is interesting because they've pledged, what is it, 10 to 12 movies in theaters per year? 
Yeah. Like that was a bold pledge. It has not happened yet. And a number of chances have gone by where they've had movies that they could have put in theaters and decided that they aren't. They just dated an Eddie Murphy holiday movie for prime video only in this not getting theaters. I would have thought that that would get a theatrical uh, run, but it's not. So I think it's all up in the air. What's going to get theaters or not, but you're right. They are still making movies. Well, Apple has its first movie. Well, first big movie for theaters later this month. Oh, killers of the flower moon. Yeah. Which it is not releasing, which Paramount is releasing for it. Yes. But Apple's paying for the marketing and it's, it's their movie. It's funny. I just got the latest tracking on Killers of the Flower Moon, and it's it's on pace for a $24, 25000000 million opening weekend, according to tracking. That seems high to me for a three and a half hour dark drama where we kind of know what happens. Yeah, I don't Is know. Is that, that just seems... the Leo factor? Scorsese, Leo, it might be high, but honestly, either way, that number is not great for a movie that costs more than $200 million. Right, but it's Apple. Money means nothing. They are in business with Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio. That is what matters. This is a little bit of a sidetrack, but have you heard from people about this like false optimism in the marketplace that after Oppenheimer, you're going to have all these adult dramas do super sure. well? Yeah. And then you looked at a movie like Killers of the Flower Moon, and it's like, sorry, that is not Oppenheimer. It's not going to make $900 million. It's not going to make $500 million. No, or even this past weekend, Disney tried to open The Creator which was an original sci-fi spectacle movie that you would think Disney would have a pretty good track record and be able to open. It opened to 14 million, which is not enough. Now, Disney did not pay for that movie. It was a Regency movie. But like, if you can't get adults to go see a crowd-pleaser sci-fi movie, how are you going to get them to go see a dark drama? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, Oppenheimer, I know Barbie is the story of the year, but like Oppenheimer, to me, is the miracle of the year. The fact that that movie made $900 million in theaters, it's still hard for me to believe. It's insane. It's And it's the single biggest reason you'll win our box office trap. So, you know, I know. Just, I, know. Just that, I, I wasn't going to bring it up, but now that you did, <laughs> you got it all riding on Aquaman 2, man. Yeah, I'm screwed. And the new trailer for Wish, the Disney movie, looks pretty good. At least it's not for me, but I think my kid would be into that. And the music looks good. So I'm, I'm riding high right now. Okay, what have we missed? from the long-term impact of the strike? Well, how is Hollywood going to change? If we want to go to a positive here, because I think there's a lot of negatives, some of them from the market forces in general, and some of them just from the overall state of the business and creative malaise that has kind of fallen over the business. I think in periods of contraction, it makes people desperate. And desperation tends to breed new ideas. and hopefully new ideas will be different and fresh and something that people will maybe take chances on. And that's the best case scenario we have for both TV and film right now. Yeah, I've tried to remain optimistic, even before the strike, when people were freaking out about the austerity in Hollywood and corrections and all that stuff, that forcing people to be a little more cost conscious would create some good ideas. Now, the, the counter to that is that all these studios are super conservative and that doesn't tend to lead to great things. But there's outside companies now. Like, yeah. look at what the Peter Chernin, David Nevins studio is doing. The former head of Fox, former head of Showtime. They are actively trying to recreate the old TV business model where you own the content, develop it yourself, pay for it yourself, and then you sell it to the highest bidder and own the economics of it. So if they can make that work, 
you know, and look at these two movies that are coming out this year that are awards contenders from MRC, which is the production company. They had Fair Play that you saw. And then they have American Fiction, which is the uh, Toronto Audience Award winner. Like those movies both sold to streamers, but they are examples of movies getting made outside the studio system that are having an impact and are good and perhaps maybe will find audiences. We don't know. I hope that there are a few companies that can build that business and create an independent financing model on the TV side. That's the goal, certainly, of the folks at North Road and at MRC and to some extent at Candle with Kevin Mayer and Tom Staggs. Whether that will really happen, whether they will be able to retain control and streaming services will will go along with it, remains to be seen. So to wrap it up, you do not think that the current state of the business is going to push all these TV writers into successful film careers? No. <laughs> Neither do I. But it could push some of the big names into maybe trying a film script that they hadn't had time to because they've been too busy in TV, and maybe that will generate the next great Oscar winner. Because there will be fewer set jobs, people will have to experiment a little bit more to figure out what the next thing is. And that's where you have the... The, the downside is, is less stability for them, but the upside is if they come up with a great idea because they're sort of forced to. TV writers, write that spec script. You always wanted to. Yeah, and if you have uh, a great idea and you have an agent, they will get you a good deal. All right, we're back with the call sheet. Craig, I asked Lucas to stay because he is our resident Beyonce expert, but did you guys see both the commercials last night during the Sunday Night Football game for the Taylor Swift movie and then the announcement and trailer this morning for the Beyonce movie? Yeah, and I probably will be at one of those shows. I'm not sure which. That kind of depends on my wife, but I will probably be seeing one of these. It's interesting because AMC, I don't think, had planned to do much advertising for the Taylor movie because AMC is is distributing it directly, uh, both movies, actually. And the whole reason that they found this to be a great deal was because Taylor sort of markets herself. And obviously she's now marketing herself during Kansas city chiefs football games, but they also are running ads, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, they'll probably run ads for the Beyonce movie too. Lucas, I want to know which movie of these two will be the highest grocer worldwide. The Taylor Swift movie will make way more money but the Beyonce movie will be better. All right. So your prediction is Taylor wins the box office war. Her movie's coming out October 13th. It's got a 1989 price point. The Beyonce movie has a $22 price point, upcharges for premium screens. And you still think the Taylor movie is going to make more money. Beyonce comes out on December 1st. Look, I think Taylor is a bigger star. It's not even, I think, Taylor is a bigger star. In this country, is that true worldwide? Well, the most amazing thing about Taylor to me is if you go back five years, she was one of the biggest pop stars in the world, along with Drake and Ed Sheeran and all these other people. And it looked like her career was going to plateau and start to decline a little bit as she entered her 30s, as happens with so many young pop stars. And instead, during the pandemic, she jumped to a whole other level where she's now so much bigger than any other musician in the world. Argue, I would say the biggest musician right now since Michael Jackson. And Beyonce is just not at that level. She can sell out tours like Taylor can. 
But when we're talking about like mass interest, people listening to, engaging with the material, Beyonce became more of a kind of a capital A artist. I just don't think there's any question that there will be more people who try to go see the Taylor movie. However, having been to both shows, the Beyonce show visually is way better, way more interesting. And Beyonce has made these movies before. So I just think it will be a beautiful thing to watch. Isn't she also incorporating more into the movie? Isn't it also about like the making of other albums and a more documentary background style film? Taylor's movie is just the, the actual performance, right? Yes, that is true. And I think that Beyonce's artistic ambition with this film is probably a lot greater than Taylor's, which essentially is just, you couldn't come to the show or you did and you liked it a lot, come see it again in the movie theater. Yes, it is what some would call a cash grab. <laughs> or others would say that she's making the show accessible to fans who could not pay $1,000 to go see it like uh, the tickets cost in LA. Tomato, tomato, yes. It's interesting that the deal here because the Beyonce movie is getting a four-week minimum run in these theaters, which uh, is a big deal because December 1st is the release date and that goes into the holidays. So this movie will be in theaters during the holidays. Who knows how well the Taylor movie is going to do it opens on the 13th of October, but if it does well, it could also still be in theaters when the Beyonce movie is there. So we may have a Barbenheimer phenomenon where you could see one in the morning and the other in the afternoon. Yeah, well, that would that would require the Taylor Swift movie to last six, seven weeks. That would it be, would, uh, but I wouldn't be surprised, at least in some markets, you know, then I know there was potentially some plans to do a special thing on Taylor's birthday, which is December 13th. So maybe that could be a reason for people to return. And listen, yeah. Taylor Swift is genius at getting people to pay multiple times for her product, which she's doing with her albums. Maybe there's an additional song that gets added for her birthday or a director's cut or something like that. I'll be curious if either movie does big business overseas. Oh, interesting. All right. So my prediction here is that I agree with you. The Taylor movie will be bigger. I think the Taylor movie will be way bigger in the US, but Beyonce might be bigger overseas. Yeah, but Taylor hasn't performed internationally yet. So you you think that will actually hurt the sales of the movie? I, I would think that people overseas who know that they're not going to go to the concert might as well just see the movie. Yeah, it's interesting. They initially did not plan on putting the movie overseas until she had played the concerts there. And then they changed their mind and said, let's just do this. It won't impact ticket sales. I don't think it will impact ticket sales. But I wonder if people are going to be more primed to go see the movie in this country after they've seen the show than before. Look, for a lot of people I know who had nosebleed seats and Taylor Swift looked like a tiny ant on stage, a lot of those people are going to see the movie so they yes, can see it up close. That is true. So, you know, we'll see. And honestly, the big winner here is AMC. My buddy Adam Aaron, the CEO, he's now got two big movies that have nothing to do with traditional studios for the fall at a time when the traditional studios yanked a bunch of movies because of the strike. So instead of Dune 2, he's got Beyonce. Instead of, you know, Ghostbusters 2, he's got Taylor Swift. So good for him. Couldn't have happened to a better guy. <laughs> All right. <laughs> thank you, Lucas. Thanks, Matt. That's the show. I want to thank my guest, Lucas Shaw. I want to thank producer Craig Holbeck and our editor, Jesse Lopez. And I want to thank you. We will see you later this week. 